When I was little, one of my favorite memories was that our librarian in elementary school would come into our classroom once every few months to read a chapter out of some of her favorite books. I remember we would gather around the carpet, sit, and stare up at her as she would read. This was one of the few instances in school settings where I actually felt immersed in the process. I just remember being able to visualize all of these scenes that she was reading out of these books in my own mind. And right when the most interesting part of the story was about to be revealed to us, she would stop, close the book, and encourage us all to pop into the library and check that book out if we wanted to figure out what would happen next. This was such an effective way to get a child like me to actually go to the library and immerse myself in reading books. If it wasn't for this librarian, I don't think I would have been interested in books the way that I was. I actually did go into the library. I would actually check out the books that she was recommending to us all because she was able to take us all out from the norm and make the reading process an immersive audio and visual experience in our own minds. It was an exercise of our imagination, and I loved that. Reading is not something that comes naturally to me. As a woman living with both autism and ADHD, my attention span for certain things is very little. And if I'm not absolutely interested in a book, I am not going to read it. Which, there's an issue with that, right? Because how are you supposed to know you're going to be interested in reading a book until you are reading the first few pages and realize that it is not interesting at all to you? Just to be completely realistic with you guys, I am not a big book reader, but lately I have been trying to read books about neurodivergency in order to learn more and more about our minds and other people's stories and everything encompassing neurodivergency. And as I dive into these books, I want to be able to read some of my favorite chapters to you guys on my channel. Not only so that you guys can listen and I could just share this knowledge to you guys, but also this could be a great way for you to fall asleep to this if sometimes you have trouble falling asleep, or if you are an avid reader yourself, and maybe if you're not even an avid reader like me, these videos can pique your interest and get you to go out and buy these books yourself to read. With that being said, I am going to read the first chapter of the book Divergent Mind, Thriving in a World That Wasn't Designed for You by Janera Narenberg. This book is amazing. I really have been learning so much and had so much epiphanies while reading this book so the link to this book will be in the description box below if you want to continue reading but with that being said let's get into the first chapter when i moved back to california after six years of reporting from asia my daughter who was two and a half years old at the time cried mom you're just running around and around and around oh my gosh i thought she sees me I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, and now she's found it out. That same year, the National Institutes of Health announced $10.1 million in grants to counteract gender bias in research. 
I wish I had known at the time because I would have volunteered myself as a subject. I was depressed, confused, anxious, tired, and plagued with a persistent feeling of inadequacy and the feeling that somehow I wasn't myself. I would drop my daughter off at her new preschool and feel as though I was wearing a mask around all the other parents for fear that they would discover how inept I was. Meanwhile, increasing tensions at home with my husband made it even harder to manage the mess of feelings and the literal mess of dishes and laundry. I was stumped. Here I was, a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health and UC Berkeley, with reporting for CNN, Fast Company, Healthline, and elsewhere under my belt. And yet, I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to make and stick to a decent schedule, stay on top of household duties, or hold logistical conversations with my husband. Meanwhile, between 2013 and 2016, a slew of articles were published in major news outlets about how adult women were being overlooked in research about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and autism. Writer and ADHD activist Maria Yagoda published a story in The Atlantic about being a student at Yale who struggled with a broad range of executive functioning from cleaning to losing items and money to tracking what time to be where. People didn't believe she could have ADHD because she was so smart. Spectrum published a similar story about girls and women with autism. A young woman named Maya was profiled, who was thought to struggle with severe anxiety and other challenges until she was finally recognized as being autistic. I think Facebook was listening to my conversations with family members and therapists because suddenly articles and books started popping up in my newsfeed about women with ADHD and Asperger syndrome and about the highly sensitive person. I started seeing new research coming out about mental health challenges of high-achieving women, and I was transfixed, captivated, utterly glued to what I was reading. Because it turned out that I wasn't alone. Study after study indicated high rates of depression and anxiety among successful women, but other traits like ADHD and autism were beginning to surface as well. I had never thought of these before, but I couldn't deny what I was reading was resonating with me. I was sensitive. I liked talking about only a few select topics, like people, psychology, and inner life. These were my special interests. Logistics might as well have been an alien language. And this word masking kept jumping out at me as describing an experience that I didn't realize or want to admit to. So I begin this book by sharing a kind of confusion that plagued me at the time, a feeling of shock and dissonance, but also of hope and relief. Could I be on some kind of sensory spectrum, like the autism spectrum? Or did I have ADHD? Both seem likely, but I didn't seek out assessment, diagnosis, confirmation, or anything of the like. Instead, I turned to research, studies, news articles, and countless interviews and stories with women who sounded a lot like me. Masking refers to an unconscious or conscious effort to hide and cover one's own self from the world as an attempt to accommodate others and coexist. Research and anecdotal evidence show that an extensive amount of masking and passing is going on among women and girls, primarily because of the way women are socialized. Girls and women have been taught from an early age to blend in. According to researchers and the many women I interviewed for this book, Often, women hear the common refrain, Oh, she's just sensitive. That's how girls are. This is a sloppy but widespread oversight in our culture.
Masking claims many lives, and I don't necessarily mean that women literally commit suicide, although that can happen as well, but they may commit a kind of virtual suicide, leaving many women feeling empty, depressed, and anxious, and robbing them of living according to their true selves. When society is not equipped to hold an accurate mirror up to you, you end up interpreting your reflection according to available lenses, structures, and terminology, but they're often wrong and misleading, or worse, harmful. My depth of curiosity, sensitivity, persistent wondering, and questioning, my insatiable hunger to know and understand is not mirrored in the wider culture, even in academia. I am deeply curious about the inner lives of others and understanding them, which often looks like asking a ton of questions, but this is not how people make friends. It took me a long time to figure that out. So instead of accepting myself as curious, passionate, and inquisitive, I felt different and isolated. Slowly, I allowed my mannerisms and gestures to match those I witnessed around me and the messages I was getting, namely, don't ask too many personal questions, don't talk too much, don't deliver essay-length monologues on philosophical topics. Over time, I changed. Some of the change was likely because of natural maturation, but certainly some of it felt painful and necessary in order to adapt. I had to stuff a lot of my curiosity, and I turned to reading and to other independent ways to explore the expanse of the mind, meaning I spent less time interacting with other people and more time alone. Again, these are not bad things in and of themselves, but at the time I was operating in a binary of abnormal and normal, and thought that those were my only options in order to coexist with the world. I had no knowledge yet of the wide diversity of ways that the brain is made up and ways that people interact. So without anything telling me otherwise, without any mirrors reflecting who I was, I masked and I suppressed. This is happening for women across the globe. In the past, we were labeled hysterical, but now we're anxious. What many women don't know, and this includes the doctors and therapists with whom we interact, is that... Other mirrors are available to us that reflect previously hidden parts of ourselves. It is said that the senses can be gateways to the soul, and I take that quite literally. Sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell correspond to either our mental health or our mental distress, depending on our sensitivities. Think of an onion with its many layers. At the core of our being are our genes, biology, and childhood experiences, but also our sensory makeup. That is, how our nervous system responds to and interacts with our sensory world, what delights us, what repels us. Over time throughout our lives, all of these components interact, producing layers of emotions and resulting behaviors. When some of us end up in therapist's or doctor's office with anxiety, depression, or autoimmune health challenges, our options are limited to talk therapy or medication because only these outer layers of emotion and behavior are probed. We have been going about our lives and professions thinking we know the full list of possible diagnostic criteria, but the senses have been left out and thus a very core component of what makes people who they are goes completely untended. Many people think of outdated stereotyped images when they consider autism and ADHD, and it's important to remember that there is a spectrum of experiences. It's likely that these labels could apply to people in your own life, 
perhaps your boss, neighbor, friend, or family member, or even you. What I see as fundamentally missing from the conversation is a rallying point around diversity and how individuals process sensory input, and specifically, recognizing a broad occurrence of heightened sensitivity. Some people may be fine with leaving this discussion at what has already been expertly explored by Elaine Aaron in her 1996 book, The Highly Sensitive Person, How to Thrive When the World Overwhelms You. But I'm not. I want psychology and psychiatry to take sensitivity concerns further because of how they affect people's work, family life, education, economic opportunities, intimacy, and parenting. The public and professionals need to understand that people with sensory differences such as autism and ADHD and a few other neurodivergent traits experience heightened sensitivity across the board and these differences affect nearly every aspect of their lives. Many such neurodivergent women are suffering, as many times these traits occur along with anxiety and depression, especially if the underlying sensory differences go undiagnosed. The full scope of such differences, which often merit a diagnosis, is often unknown not only to friends and family, but also to the women themselves. One woman I interviewed graduated from Columbia University, but wasn't diagnosed until the age of 28. Likewise, a mom in California didn't realize her own autistic and ADHD traits until she was in her 40s and her son was diagnosed. She recognized that his symptoms were ones that she had been dealing with her whole life. I realized my own neurodivergencies at the age of 32 only because I started digging into the latest research. An entire demographic of women is now being referred to as a lost generation because an extensive amount of depression and anxiety surface as a result of internal experiences that don't match up with what the world expects or how the world views such women since they appear to function normally on the outside. This lack of awareness and understanding is largely due to neglect on the part of researchers because study samples often rely on streamlined populations of men. Therefore, doctors, therapists, teachers, and police officers just don't know what a woman with ADHD, Asperger's, synesthesia, SPD, or high sensitivity might look like or how she might act. As a result, thousands of women have no name for their life experiences and feelings. When I began encountering questions myself, I started digging deeper, fueled by wanting to have a name, a label for my experience in the world, how I show up, how my mind and body react to certain situations, and most of all, why I have felt so bad about myself. One day on a flight from South Korea to Nepal, I started imagining that there may be more people out there like me. And what if there were other ways of being in the world that I didn't have names or labels yet, especially for women? I created the phrase temperament rights to capture this idea of one's temperament or neurological makeup being respected in the same way that we respect other core aspects of people such as gender, sexuality, or ethnic identity. 
I started to imagine a world in which the richness of the human nature, what we call one's inner life, is acknowledged and respected with the same awareness of diversity that we see in terms of outer categories of identification such as race, culture, sexuality, expression, and gender. If courageous leaders and activists before me had rallied around the importance of recognizing these outer categories, couldn't we do the same for internal categories of identification? Don't our inner lives deserve just as much attention as our outer lives? Having an inner life, an internal emotional world, is universal. It's something all of us possess. And something like ADHD or high sensitivity can show up in anyone. Women and men, white folks and people of color, trans folks and cis folks. Being the person I am, I rushed to my laptop and started searching around to see whether others were talking about this. It didn't take me long to find the term neurodiversity, which means recognizing and celebrating the diversity of brain makeups instead of pathologizing some as normal and others as abnormal. What happened next is one of the moments in life that haunt me in the best of ways. I had been noticing a striking man walking my street early in the morning each day with his daughter beside him. I sensed a joy within him, a freedom, a walk that signaled openness and calm and groundedness. His ever-present smile was notable. I passed him almost every day while walking my own daughter to her school. And when I was at my computer months later in Asia and discovered neurodiversity for the first time, the same man's face popped up on my screen. It turns out that he, Nick Walker, is a notable neurodiversity author and scholar, and he lived just a few blocks away from me. At the same time, and thanks to Twitter's algorithms, I found the tweets of author and neurodiversity expert Steve Silberman and started to delve into what would come to define the next few years of my life, an exploration and investigation of neurodiversity. Silberman's 2015 book, Neurotribes, The Legacy of Autism and the Future of Neurodiversity, is a historical account that focuses largely on boys and men with the neurodivergence of autism. But I found myself leaning into the research about adult women and several neurodivergencies that have high sensitivity in common. From my research, I discovered the trait of sensitivity seems almost synonymous with developmental neurodivergencies in adult women. Sensitivity implies a certain height in reaction to external stimuli, experiences, noises, chatter, others' emotional expression, sound, light, or other environmental changes. Sensitivity and high empathy are common experiences for many women, but some experience these qualities to more severe degrees, and they remain unaware that they can be hallmarks of Asperger's, ADHD, HSP, and other traits. Elaine Aaron's use of the term high sensitivity in her book, The Highly Sensitive Person, refers to a person with a characteristic depth of processing of external information. A person with sensory processing sensitivity, which is the scientific term for HSP. For someone with Asperger's, sensitivity might imply a sense of being overwhelmed when overstimulated. And for someone with ADHD, a common but unknown feature is a sensitivity to one's own emotions and the regulation of them. For the person with SPD, certain smells or textures heighten their reactions. And for the person with synesthesia, the presence of suffering or strong emotions in others can overwhelm them, an aspect of synesthesia called mirror touch. It is interesting to note that all five of these neurodivergencies, HSP, ADHD, autism, SPD, and stenesthesia, 
often implies some version of melting down emotionally. Adult tantrums, quick appearing migraines, outbursts of anger because of sensory overload. Once we understand sensitivity and its connection to neurodiversity, sensitive women no longer have to walk around with a hidden secret about what they know they feel and experience every day. Taking in vast amounts of information about one's environment, including the people in it, and somatically processing all of that input, the science has finally caught up with our real, lived experience. And we no longer need to hide in a closet for fear of being deemed crazy, over-emotional, or not academic enough. Divergent Mind explores specifics about five neurodivergencies that have sensitivity at their core. HSP, ADHD, SPD, autism, and synesthesia and how new understandings and insights can be applied to daily life and society as a whole. We will dive into the worlds of women who have spent their lives masking without knowing it because of the way women are socialized to fit in and pick up on social cues. Underlying traits of autism or ADHD or other neurological makeups essentially get missed. So again, enter neurodiversity, the understanding whereby mental differences are viewed simply as they are and not judged as better or worse, normal or abnormal. As a society, we need a shift in thought that applies to all neurological makeups, including more well-known ones such as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. But this book focuses specifically on five sensory processing differences with sensitivity at their core that would typically be classified as being related to developmental differences. Neurodiversity is a paradigm shift that empowers women to come forward, be seen, better understand themselves, and proudly claim their identities. Divergent Mind also highlights the pressing need for our definitions of mental health, disorder, and mental illness to evolve. For example, is ADHD a disorder? Or is it simply one form the human brain takes in our species as a part of a natural array of human brain diversity, much as biodiversity implies a variety of plants, colors, and fauna in our ecosystem? Other questions we explore include, how do we make space for the variety of human brains and sensory makeups we see? What happens when we stop pathologizing difference? We'll see that creativity, innovation, and human flourishing often result. By adopting neurodiversity thinking, we can begin to see brain difference and sensory difference as any other difference we acknowledge and celebrate. Furthermore, how does knowing that neurodivergent people make up at least 20% of the population begin to shift our concept of normal, disordered, or mentally ill? Perhaps we are really talking about humanity as a whole rather than a set of neurotypical versus neurodivergent individuals. Given that so many neurodivergent people go undiagnosed, we may be looking at an entirely different concept of what it means to be human. Such a shift in understanding could help thousands of women around the world living with undiagnosed or misdiagnosed neurodivergencies, avoid years of unnecessary comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, shame, guilt, low self-esteem, and distorted self-image. Neurodiversity, when embraced, can dramatically improve all aspects of life.
What is considered pathology is largely a construct and product of the times. Mental health specialists spend their careers carving out the precise parameters around certain diagnosis, and when two or more diagnoses start to overlap or run up against each other, people get territorial and defensive and protective. This may sound shocking or ridiculous, but it is true. So it is imperative that the language and vocabulary of neurodiversity, the understanding that there is a natural array of human brain makeups, begin to seep not only into medical and psychiatric canon, but also into the everyday colloquial language of the public. We must ask, why does the way you pay attention determine your work prospects and life satisfaction? If you, like me, pay attention in either spurts or overwhelmingly on one thing, then your teachers or bosses may start to view you as if you don't align with the norm. Thus, you unknowingly begin to edit and adapt, to mask for survival. This begins a repeating cycle of censoring, attempting to fit in, and overall altering your performance of yourself in the world, leading to depression, anxiety, burnout, or worse. You're also more likely to be fired from jobs than people who are neurotypical, and thus you may struggle financially. All the while, however, you also know you've been able to perform well in particular areas, especially in unconventional working environments. This all paints a confusing picture, and you may get to the point of asking yourself, like I did, what the hell is going on? Your confidence and self-esteem plummet, and you begin to question many of your oldest experiences and frames for understanding yourself and society. Social awkwardness is a term that has enjoyed some buzz recently, but I think some caution is needed here. If we call attention to neurodivergence as a form of social awkwardness, then we are further enforcing the idea of normal and abnormal and the dominance of the neurotypical status quo. If we wish to move to a language and framework of friendly neurodiversity, the term socially awkward must be removed. We are all different flavors of human. There is no one correct, right, or standard way to be. There are tendencies, yes, And for that, we have the label neurotypical. But as research increases on the individual variations of our brains and temperaments, I believe each particular strand of brain makeup will be viewed simply as that, the same way color is viewed for what it is, with none deemed more normal than the next.